electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, my conversation with Dr. Katherine Jansen, senior vice president and head of vaccine research and development at Pfizer. She joined me at CNBC's Healthy Return Summit on May 11, 2021, to talk about developing the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine in record time betting on the existing but unproven mRNA technology and the ongoing process of testing booster doses and combating variants. Here's our conversation. I'm so happy to get to be here with Katherine Jansen, one of the people who has really played such a pivotal role in delivering us out of this pandemic with Pfizer's vaccine. Catherine, if, if you could just try to give us a sense of what this incredible, unprecedented year has been like for you. Yeah, thank you, Meg, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, Last year was clearly a year like no other, uh, given the devastation of the pandemic uh, and uh, the uh, urgent need to develop a a vaccine to be able to protect people from this uh, terrible virus and and disease. Uh, We were tasked with uh, doing something that has never been done before, Uh, developing a vaccine in record speed uh, uh, last year. And so needless to say, we had to change um, uh, the way we operate, the the way we work, um, all while this uh, pandemic was was raging around us. And so um, it was really a very different, different way of engaging uh, with with our colleagues, with with outside um, entities, such as academia, governments, um, regulatory agencies, uh, et cetera. So we essentially had to throw everything uh, overboard that we that we ever knew um, how to do in under normal circumstances. And one of the other things that was different too was you decided to bet on a technology, messenger RNA, that had never been really proven um, to work uh, as a vaccine that at least got out on the market before. Uh, Tell us about those decision-making days, how you decided, because you've developed a lot of vaccines with different technologies, how you decided that mRNA was the right way to go for this pandemic. Yeah, so as you as you noted, Meg, um, in my many years of doing vaccine research and development, I was very familiar, of course, with a number of different platforms. And we have assessed uh, for other programs uh, a number of different platforms um, before. So when it became clear that a pandemic would be upon us and we realized how little we know about the uh, the virus, um, what occurred to me is that in the absence of knowing Um, what would be required for protection, the best platform to uh, focus on would be one that triggers many different arms of the immune system. And we had uh, two years prior in 2018 started a collaboration with BioNTech 
on an mRNA uh, platform-based influenza vaccine. So we knew from their experience in the oncology field, from our experiences already that we had working on this platform, that this platform was very much suited to, um, as I call, tick all the boxes of um, appropriate immune responses that we may need to, uh, to combat this virus. And so it was also driven by the knowledge that the mRNA platform could be developed very quickly. It's essentially a synthetic, a mostly synthetic process. So that was going uh, for the platform. We knew that uh, we would, not knowing how long uh, vaccine protection may last, should we be successful. It's a platform that can be boosted um, over and over again. So those were some of the considerations why I felt very comfortable that if we really need to have comprehensive a comprehensive immune response, that that platform would be uniquely suited to, um, to get us over the finish line. The fact that this is an unknown technology, or not unknown anymore, but previous to this pandemic, um, also means there are many questions about it, um, including perhaps how long uh, the protection might last from these vaccines. This is also a new virus, so, so questions about that as well. What do you expect with what you know right now um, about how long the protection, your vaccine, uh, how long that protection will be? Yeah, so what we already have... Um, uh, uh, communicated recently is that we just did another uh, analysis um, that showed very clearly that at least up to six months, we still have very good uh, protection from uh, COVID-19. What we don't know yet is, of course, how long will this protection last? And uh, since we never um, had a vaccine license, we had a lot of experience actually with the RNA platform already, but no vaccine has been licensed um, uh, before we licensed uh, a vaccine for COVID-19. So, of course, we do not know how long vaccine protection really lasts. We can't look into the future. And so what we're actively uh, doing is um, setting us up uh, to study whether, for example, we can employ a booster immunization. And would that booster immunization bring us up, at least in terms of immunogenicity, to the levels that we had um, uh, for the, the last uh, six months after administering the second uh, booster shot? This is, requires clinical trials. We're also very actively uh, monitoring the um, immune responses to our vaccines. Um, what is a very important um, issue for us is, of course, the occurrence and, uh, of, of new SARS-CoV-2 variants. So we're assessing that on an ongoing basis. So in a nutshell, we're doing everything clinically right now, in addition, of course, to follow our phase three um, uh, study that is, uh, that is still active and will continue to be active for quite some time. We're doing a lot of other clinical evaluation that helps us to stay ahead of the virus in terms of vaccine protection, how long will it last, in terms of uh, what do we need to ensure that uh, should variants of this virus emerge that, uh, that uh, may evade immune, immune protection from our vaccines, 
uh, to get us really ready to address that problem in a very, very fast manner. And one thing that we know uh, that we need to understand in order to be able to assess boosters and just to better assess future vaccines potentially as well is what's known as correlates of protection, that level of immune response, whether it's antibodies or I don't know if you could employ you know, some way of gauging T cells as well um, to know that you'll be protected from disease. How close do you think we are to really understanding the correlates of protection for COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, that's a very good question, uh, Meg, actually, because it's really, uh, there are lots of discussions ongoing of um, how to uh, to get to potential correlate of protection. And just for, um, for general information, for many of the vaccines that are already licensed and have been successfully used for many years, there is no correlate of protection. We just fundamentally do not know what a level of an immune response or what even the immune response is that is required uh, to be protective. So we are in a similar situation here. Uh, there's a lot of studies that are being conducted. For example, we try to correlate uh, the um, neutralizing antibodies, for example, and ask the question, is a neutralizing antibody level in any way correlated with a breakthrough um, of, uh, of protection? Uh, we also need to look at the persistence of, of T-cell responses. So we have already described that our vaccine induces good uh, memory, both T and B-cell responses. So chances, uh, chances are that upon stimulation, whether that's by natural exposure or by a booster, booster immunization, we will get back to um, the levels that we were. But we still do not have a grasp of what it is actually that we need. So for example, we have studied the ability of our immune serum to neutralize uh, the different variants that are emerging. We find that in some of them, our neutralization titers are actually much lower than for other variants. Nevertheless, when we look at protection, it doesn't correlate with protection. So even though we have lower neutralizing antibodies, we do um, see still full protection against those variants. So that argues that neutralizing antibodies is not the only, the only um, um, requirement for protection, but there are other immune mechanisms uh, at, uh, at play that lead to uh, protection. So it's a very complicated story. And uh, based on our prior experience with other vaccines, we actually may never come up with a true correlate of protection uh, for this particular virus. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I wonder also how you personally think about um, the questions that people have uh, about a vaccine that was developed so quickly and that is based on a new technology. Um, you know, a lot of people say, how can we be assured of the long-term safety uh, of a vaccine like this? And then there are sort of, there's a spectrum of, of people's feelings about these things. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the effect on, on women's periods uh, even and, and changes there that some folks say is actually a legitimate thing to look at. 
how do you just kind of look at all of these different questions around the safety of the vaccine and how well understood it can be after a year of study? Yeah, so we could, we understand that um, because the um, the vaccine was developed in such a short uh, short uh, period of time, and there was limited clinical experience uh, before we started our phase three study, that there is a certain anxiety in the mind of um, uh, certain individuals. I think that's understandable. However, I think what I would say is we have conducted the evaluation of this vaccine under the same stringent conditions that we usually um, apply to all of our other vaccines that we have successfully uh, developed. So the size of the study is enormous, um, over 46,000 individuals. The um, the uh, the safety and tolerability of that vaccine studied in this large population uh, is um, benign. Um, we have not seen uh, worrisome any worrisome signals out of this large study. And furthermore, after we got the emergency use authorization, now we we have immunized or have um, applied already over. 100 million doses of this vaccine. And so we do extensive uh, surveillance. We call that pharmacovigilance, surveillance of the uh, vaccine uh, safety profile that we see now in huge numbers of individuals. And again, when you compare the experience from our very large phase three study, with the experience that we see now in many, many more individuals, again, we have we see the same safety profile that we have already identified uh, during our uh, ongoing uh, phase three studies. And we are actually ahead when you think about this uh, for when and compare what we are doing to what is usually happening when we roll out vaccines. It takes a long time under normal circumstances to roll out a vaccine after it's licensed and start immunizing large numbers in the population. We are ahead here due to the pandemic. We really had to press on the accelerator to immunize as many people as we could with the available vaccine doses as fast as possible. So we're generating those data uh, in real time, uh, in much larger uh, numbers of individuals that we usually uh, uh, get to study um, after we first uh, roll out uh, or have rolled out other vaccines. So this gives us that personally, this gives me and and us great comfort that we have uh, probably seen everything that there is to, that there is to be seen with this vaccine. Hmm. I wonder also your thoughts on on the potential of this technology for vaccines going forward and maybe therapeutics as well, as I know that was sort of originally how it was being looked at mRNA. Um, and then this pandemic came along and really proved its power as a vaccine technology. Do you see this as the future of flu shots? Do you see any limitation really to what mRNA might be able to do when it comes to vaccines? I think the, the great success of the mRNA vaccines in addressing uh, COVID-19 uh, has clearly opened up a large number of possibilities. 
So as I already mentioned, uh, we started in 2018 working with BioNTech on a seasonal influenza vaccine. And the reason for this was that we always had great confidence in this, um, in this platform. So the RNA right now is what I call a platform approach. It can be applied to many people. And uh, the profile, the immune profile of uh, this platform is very important when one thinks about the seasonal influenza vaccine. Because what we want to do, we want to have better vaccines uh, for older individuals. We know that our immune systems age, and um, unfortunately they start aging already in, um, in, very, in very early years. And so we have seen that with this platform, we can induce a de novo immune response in younger and older individuals pretty much to, to a similar level. And clearly the efficacy of the vaccine was also very similar. So this is really, really potent when one thinks about uh, applying this technology for seasonal influenza vaccine, where we really haven't man managed with the current technology to protect um, particularly older individuals very well. So this is, a, in my mind, a very powerful approach to get us to ultimately uh, more potent uh, seasonal influenza vaccines. Couple that, particularly when one thinks about influenza, with the yearly race to get the vaccine composition, meaning the selection of the strains and what should be in the vaccine to get this right. And part of the reason also why the potency of our uh, seasonal influenza vaccines are uh, variable is that sometimes late in the production cycle of those vaccines, other strains seem to dominate, to dominate that the, the, the four strains in the vaccine uh, do not address appropriately. So we see all, often that one strain is, we don't protect well against one, one or two strains. Um, and with the RNA platform, we have, because we can do it so fast and pivot so fast, we have the opportunity, even if something, a strain is emerging later in the production cycle, we can pivot and then make the, the strain that is likely to cause um, uh, huge problems during the influenza season. That was Dr. Katherine Jansen, Senior Vice President and Head of Vaccine Research and Development at Pfizer. She joined me at CNBC's Healthy Return Summit on May 11, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For more information on upcoming CNBC events and how you can join us, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Thanks for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.